Welcome to the podcast of Azel Christian Church. We are a Disciples of Christ Church community in Azel, Texas. We invite everyone to be who you are with us, the doubting, the believing, the wondering, and everything in between. On this podcast, you'll hear our pastor, Reverend Ashley Dargai, preach on how the expansive and generative love of God is seen through Jesus, the prophets, the early church, and the faith forebears, and how this love helps us care for the world more deeply and faithfully. Sometimes it's messy and tough, but it's good news, and it is for you. Our scripture for this morning is Matthew 5, 13 through 20. You can find it on the back of your bulletin. It'll also be on the screen if you'd like to follow along. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp or a glow stick or a flashlight and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My preaching professor in seminary had one rule for sermon writing, and it was this. Say just one thing. He would lament the sermons that gave five points for a better life or structured itself like a history lecture. He cautioned against framing our sermons as self-help TED Talks or a stand-up routine with a little bit of Jesus. Sermons are a unique art form unto themselves. He said, here's the best guideline I can give you for writing sermons. Say one thing and say it well. Well, I don't think Jesus took a preaching class, at least not with my preaching professor. Because in his Sermon on the Mount, he says a lot of things. He makes a lot of points. It's a long sermon. He quotes Torah and riffs on it. He speaks in riddles. I mean, even in the tiny section that we read today, just seven verses, he says more than one thing, right? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. So be those things. Also, concerning the law and the prophets, the things that make for good Jewish religion, I'm not against them. I'm not abolishing them. I'm actually fulfilling them. It's like the law and the prophets are a tailor-made jacket for me. And I'm here to put it on and fill the jacket well. And so you too should do that. He says, fulfill the full extent of the law and prophets. I know that seems like a tall order, one that even our best religious leaders have trouble doing, but look, 
if you don't surpass our best and most well-meaning religious leaders in righteousness, what hope do you have? Not a lot. I mean, that's at least four points, maybe five and a half, depending on how you count. And it ends on a weird note. I mean, in a way, the section carefully chosen for us by the creators of the lectionary a long time ago is kind of all over the place. We're given some metaphors and polemical arguments about the law, and all the while, our job is to discern the good news. Although, that probably wasn't the first order of business for his original audience. You see, the crowds who had come to listen to Jesus had really come because he was healing people and curing diseases, and that kind of health care sounds really nice. But for people who just wanted their arthritis to stop bothering them or their troublesome leg to be made right, I imagine the crowd was kind of scratching their heads at what they were hearing. Like, yeah, yeah, when are we going to get to the healing part? And I think it may help to consider the context of the Gospel of Matthew. His is the gospel we are nestled into for this lectionary year, and he has a particular bent. He is trying his hardest to show how Jesus fits in to Judaism. New religions and religious sects were deemed suspicious at this time in Rome. And so in order to skirt suspicion, Matthew needed to show that Jesus was a mere extension of the very old and established and already Roman-approved religion. However, it was not just the Romans Matthew was concerned about speaking to. He was also speaking to the Jewish people. At the time, Israel's land was being occupied by the mighty Roman Empire. And to add insult to injury, Israel had been part of a Gentile empire since the Babylonian exile over 500 years ago. I mean, could they even remember what it meant to be free, to be a sovereign nation? Because though Israel had physically returned to their place of ancestry, their exile really was still ongoing because the land, the city, and their very temple were ruled by Roman soldiers. They were governed by a puppet king who answered to Rome. And so at that time, the Jewish people were asking questions about God's relationship to them. What did God want them to do in this complicated situation? And there were several factions of first century Judaism who each had their own response to the question. Now the Sadducees, they proposed being realistic about their situation. Their suggested way of living was making nice with the occupier, right? Collaborate with them in order to sustain a working peace and relative independence. The Zealots, however, could not stomach middle ground. Their desire was to take up weapons and fight the empire to achieve true independence and autonomy. And then the Pharisees, a very popular sect during Jesus' time who wanted to democratize access to the Torah for the people and were not the legalistic bad guys we are often told they are, opted for a more insular approach. I mean, realizing that the small Jewish nation was no match for the vast military might of empire, they proposed a more private study and practice of the Torah. I mean, if one could not obtain political and independence, at least one could preserve cultural and religious identity as a people called and set apart by God. And it is to this insular, privatized approach that Jesus speaks. It's important to note that Matthew's negative references to the Pharisees are not historical representations of the sect. 
Pharisees have been so demonized in Christian culture throughout history that their name has become synonymous with hypocrites. But that's not historically accurate. What Matthew is doing is presenting a caricature to serve his rhetorical purpose. He's trying to make a point by using the Pharisees' particular approach to faith and empire as a punchline. It would be like us making a caricature of monks and their particular approach to faith in order to prove our point. I mean, sometimes they are a punchline in our jokes. We would be doing it at the expense of many monks' genuine and authentic faith. And we, we would be exploiting stereotypes in order to serve our own rhetorical purpose. But I point it out so that you can see what he is doing as a rhetorical tool and not a historical representation, and we should see it as such. Okay, so we have established that Jesus is speaking particularly to this popular approach to faith and its practice and implementation into everyday life, this approach to privatize it, to keep it inside the family, so to speak, not to make waves or draw attention or interact with the outside world, especially the empire. And to that approach, Jesus says the wild things. You are the salt of the earth. Now, one can go many directions with their interpretation of salt. It's sterilizing properties, the way it preserves food, the way it flavors food without overpowering it, the way it was costly and one of the first things to trade in the ancient world. I mean, all metaphors apply here. Pick your favorite. And then he warns them not to lose their saltiness. But how does one lose its saltiness? Well, salt loses its saltiness when it becomes diluted when it is overpowered and saturated with other things. And we'll come back to that. And then Jesus says to this privatized faith, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. You know, it doesn't take a lot of light to light up a room. Do you know a single candle can be seen up to 1.6 miles away in a dark landscape? 1.6 miles, one candle. And then he says, you are a city on a hill. Like a lighthouse, a city on a hill is a signal of refuge and rest for the weary traveler. It is easily seen and it serves as a beacon of hope. And then Jesus talks about the law and the prophets. He has not come to abolish what has come before him. On the contrary, he has come to fulfill it. And his disciples are to fulfill it too, to its fullest extent. Not just superficially following the law and technically doing what is commanded. No, what really counts is to fulfill it from the inside out, to embody its meaning and spirit and substance. That means that doing what is commanded may take on surprising forms. For example, in Isaiah 58, the prophet turns the idea of fasting on its head. The prophet blasts the religious folks for technically fasting, you know, from abstaining from food. But all the while exploiting their workers, picking fights, and putting on a show. He says that true fasting is breaking the chains of injustice, of sharing their food with the hungry, of housing the poor, of clothing the naked, and seeing everyone in need as their kin. That is what it means to fulfill the law to get inside the spirit of what the law is for, to put flesh and bones on it. 
To the prophet, the point of fasting was to make sure everyone had enough, not to check off a box of religious to-dos. So Isaiah took on this practice of fasting because that was an essential piece of religious life. And Jesus talks about the broader aspects of observing Torah because that was an essential piece of religious life in his time. But fasting and the Torah are not key pieces of our religious life, not in our Western, mainline, Protestant context. So I wonder if we should use this framework to examine an essential practice of our religious life as an example. So one of the main tenets of progressive mainline Protestantism, of which our church is a part as disciples of Christ, is the practice of open table. I mean, one of our denomination's founder's father, Thomas Campbell, said early on in the 1800s that he was not going to fence the table. This was radical. And we exhibit this practice by saying each week, all are welcome at the table. Everyone who presides says that line after they pray. And sometimes we follow it up by saying, it is not our table. We are guests too. Christ is the host. That's how we can say that. And this practice is observed in a number of ways. I mean, we don't have any kind of protocol for checking who is receiving communion. We freely pass it out. We have our littlest ones partake in it. I mean, my own daughter chugs two or three cups of communion each week. I mean, I can't even get out. This means God loves you before she's on the third. And some church practices, including the Catholic Church, require confirmation, classes, a certificate, someone official vouching for the person taking communion, but we don't do that here. We say, come as you are. Our official church motto is, be who you are with us. And all of this is great. On a deep level, it embodies the spirit of the welcome that we see in Christ. And it certainly meets the technicality of the welcome and hospitality that Jesus extends. And we're practicing what our denomination preaches. All are welcome at the table. We're following suit with the governing body we ascribe to. But I want, us to invite, I want to invite us to look closer at this practice, to interrogate it. What is the purpose of all our welcome? You might say, well, it's all there, Ashley. Saints and sinners alike get to come to the table. We don't gatekeep. Everyone gets a place. And yeah, sure, that's right. But why is it necessary to say all are welcome? How is that not already a given? Especially since early in the 1800s we were talking about not fencing the table. Why do we feel compelled to say this phrase, all are welcome? Historically, the people who have been left out of communion, who have been barred from the table, have been people we might describe as minoritized or marginalized folks. Black and brown people in predominantly white settings, single moms, divorced people, disabled folks, queer people, whether it was the illusion or label of sin or an exclusionary or segregated practice of certain identities, the table has been fenced in many places historically despite our founding denominational sentiment. And so over the years, we as the Big C Church have tried to remedy that. 
We've thrown the door wide open and laid out the red carpet and swept aside any previous barriers. We have said it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you're from, you're welcome here. Everyone is welcome here at the table equally. We take it as far as we know how to. But I want you to hear what that means sometimes. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you do, you are welcome. It doesn't matter who you love or who you hate, you are welcome. It doesn't matter where you belong or who you keep from belonging, you are welcome. It doesn't matter what skin color you are or what skin color you're suspicious of, you are welcome. It doesn't matter how your body works or how you view others' bodies, you are welcome. It doesn't matter what you say, you are welcome. It doesn't matter how you behave, you are welcome. It doesn't matter, you are welcome. I've got a little bit more, George, just to let you know. Okay. I kind of got a lot more, yeah. Okay. I'm getting amped up, guys. Okay. All right. It doesn't matter how you behave, you are welcome. It doesn't matter, you are welcome. It doesn't matter. Does anything matter? Does any of this matter? Do you see how this practice can become diluted? how it can lose its saltiness, how its light can dim. Because what the practice of all our welcome does when it is not properly interrogated is it fails to take into account power dynamics and mutual obligations to one another. It demands the comfort of the collective at the expense of accountability. It demands civility over justice. It demands forgiveness without reckoning. It demands turning a blind eye to injustice and mistreatment in the name of false unity. At the risk of sounding like a Disciples of Christ heretic, the unexamined practice of all our welcome is lazy theology. It is theology that's not done its homework. It's not done the reading. As a former teacher, I can say that. It's not put in the reps and it lacks discipline. And this is what I mean by that. Theoretically, if we say all are welcome, that this is a safe place for everyone, we need to consider who this is a safe place for. The idea of this everybody's, in, everybody's welcome, full inclusivity model where everyone comes on equal footing is a myth because it does not take into account power. So for example, if we decided to make this sanctuary, this room right here, a zoo, and we said, come one, come all, all animals are welcome, all are safe here, and then we welcome wolves and lions and sheep and lambs, and we allow them all together to live in this one place, who is this a safe place for, really? Yeah, is it a safe place for all? I mean, just because we declare it to be so does not make it so. 
it will be a safe place for the wolves and lions, but the sheep and the lambs will be devoured, and we will be responsible for their death, because we know better. In order for this to be a safe place for lions and lambs and wolves and sheep, we would need rigorous safeguards in place. We would need extensive fencing and protocols, probably a zookeeper. And should we not be able to properly secure the areas of living, we would need to make hard decisions about which animals we could be safe places for. I mean, in what configuration could we responsibly be a safe place for any animal? I mean, we might need to decide that lions and wolves are not our thing right now. But we could herd some sheep. So let's bring this into humankind. And our extension of all are welcome. For example, if we invite queer people into this space, and say, this is a safe place for you. You are welcome here. We need to be able to mean that, not only in our hearts, but in our practice. Which means that this, this church cannot be a safe place for violent homophobia. Because in the power dynamic of homophobia and queerness in our culture, particularly in this part of Texas, the laws and cultural norms of anti-LGBTQ plus laws, attitudes, and practices have the most power. And if we say all are welcome, but we do not have safeguards and different norms in place, if we tolerate everything, then the dangerous will be safe and the vulnerable will be in danger. Because what is the spirit behind all are welcome? Technically, everyone gets a place at the table. But this open welcome is meant to be a safe place for the vulnerable and historically marginalized folks. The work of the church is not to unify as a way to negate differences or to overcome political commitments. Instead, the church's work is to enfold our whole lives into the gospel, every single bit of it. A few years ago, a story circulated about a church who presented itself as a model for nonpartisan worship. In this church, ICE agents and undocumented people worship together and share communion. And some might hear this and think, that's beautiful. That's the power of the unity of the table. However, I wonder about the spiritual and emotional harm that happens when we ask victims to share a table with their tormentors. Pastor Melissa Floor Bixler asks of this story, what does it mean for us as a body of Christ to embody the unity of the Lord's Supper with someone who an hour later could show up in uniform to kidnap someone from the church and separate them from everyone they love and disappear them from their life? She says, when we carve out an hour of worship in peace and then release people back into the world where the strong of the church can victimize the weak of the church, we make a choice about what we truly value. In this case, in this church's case, an illusion of peace and unity over the safety of the most vulnerable among them. 
And this is not just an argument for why the powerless should not be forced and coerced into gathering when the po- with the powerful in the name of superficial unity in Christ, but it is also an indictment of those who do nothing about the power dynamic. If we wash our hands of the conflict between the powerful and the powerless, it means we are siding with the powerful. There's no such thing as neutrality. The illusion of neutrality is a privilege that always aids and abets the powerful. The burden of holding the middle line is always borne by those who have the most to lose. The very people that Christians are called to prioritize and prefer, the least of these. So when we consider the purpose of the table, we realize that the call to come together is much more difficult and demands much more of us than playing nice for an hour together each week. Because the spirit of this table is not to hide the wounds of Christ and the places where his body is broken, but rather to bring those wounds and brokenness to the surface, to run our hands over it and see where there is blood on our own hands. It's for us to tend to the fractures and the breaks and the fissures and to look down and see where there is a weapon in our hand instead of healing balm. Part of the reason that we come together at the table is to remember Christ, but it's also to remember that Christ was betrayed by one of his friends and was abandoned by the rest of him, rest of them. And to help us see ourselves, not so much in Christ, but in the ones who betray and wound and abandon and kill. It's to realize over and over again how not only our hostility, but also our apathy and passivity harm the body of Christ at large. How our silence and neutrality are weapons all their own. So perhaps this sermon from Jesus does make one point. To not lose your saltiness, to let your light shine, to be a city on a hill. These are all calls to boldness. To choose. To put yourself on the line. It's to leverage the power and privilege and positions we have on behalf of the weak among us who cannot do that for themselves. It's to speak up and to make the hard decisions to make the bold proclamations of solidarity and then stick to them no matter the cost. This little church may not have a lot to offer in the way of rock concert worship, more so now that we have George, but we may not have a lot to offer in robust youth programming or mops groups or brand recognition But what it does have is it has the conviction that on some level, every single person is welcome at the table. And at times, it has made the hard decision to make that true. And the call today is to do it again and again and again. And don't stop, no matter what it costs. Follow that boldness 
that conviction, that laying down one's life for a friend kind of love all the way to the end. If any church can do it here in Azel, it is you. So rise up and be a city on a hill. Wave that flame in the air proudly and unashamedly. Be the gritty salt of the earth that will preserve the most tender among us. Exceed the righteousness of every religious leader you know. You know a lot of them with your commitment to the deep bones of the words of Jesus and fulfill the words and truths you believe and follow through to them all the way to the end. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Azel Christian Church podcast. Azel Christian Church exists to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through meaningful liturgy during worship, a public witness through outreach in the community, the nurturing of the spiritual life of every age group, and the witness of each member through discipleship, baptism, and the sharing of resources. To support this podcast and the ministries of Azel Christian Church, visit azelchristianchurch.org. Here you can contribute through giving online or find our Venmo information. If you're looking for a church or simply want to talk to one of our ministers, contact us through our website and we will be in touch. Talk to you soon.